2: Welcome to the Elkshake Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do it yourself self guided public land elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Elk Shape Podcast. Today, we're bringing on Ron Najalik. He's from Wyoming. He is a legendary bow hunter, outdoor writer. I'll give you his bio, but man, basically, this guy's been there, done that. Really excited when I get somebody on here with this much experience, bow hunting specifically elk. Uh, and he lives in Wyoming, the heart of elk country. And he's just a super humble motivating individual I I enjoyed every second of this conversation you will too so just so you guys know Ron's very accomplished bow hunter he's also a writer and an editor and he considers himself like he should a conservationist he's active in his own state's organization and he also works with Wyoming Game and Fish he has like multiple Pope and Young entries from a lot of states and for the last 20 years he's been documenting his adventures um, and it, through his writing in a variety of like magazines and websites, and he's like the former editor uh, and columnist for Extreme Elk Magazine, the one that Corey Jacobson had a few years back. He's super passionate about elk hunting. He's a lifetime member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. He he served there as a committee member and then a chapter chairman for a couple years. And he's from Cody, Wyoming. He has one son. He served in the Air Force for six years, two deployments. He spends about. Two months a year, bow hunting elk, another Western game, and he believes that hard work and persistence are vital to consistent success. So I'm very excited to have Ron on here today. Business-wise, Elk Shaped Camp 3.0, Spokane, Washington, few spots left. We have discount codes available for all six camps, and uh, the discount code is for first responders, active military, firefighter, law enforcement, something along those lines. We'll ask you for proof. The discount code is first responder all one word you will save hundred and fifty dollars off registration that means you get to come to camp learn how to crush the elk hunting learning curve learn how to call better shoot better technical archery get your fitness and your mindset dialed in get motivated create a roadmap these camps are literally game changers for the rest of your year that's why we put them in the beginning of the year also we have online Elk shaped camp if you didn't know that we don't advertise it very well but we have all the videos from our first two camps on there and we will put all the videos from our upcoming camps in 2020 there, as well as workout programs and bonus vaults. It's all private video-based, so you can play them while, the audio while you do other things, or you can watch the videos and dive in. There's a lot of information there to sift through, and it'll keep you entertained. I think an annual subscription's at 99 which is awesome. Uh, new things for 2020 since you know it is the end of the year it is time for you to reflect look back what went well what could have gone better set your big goals set up your small goals and get them in writing where you can see them and start chipping away towards the bigger picture so now is the time to bust out the pen and paper and carve out some time to truly do this to know what what is your vision for 2020 what's it going to look like and what is it going to take to accomplish everything that you feel like you need to this year. Make 2020 the best year yet. Uh, 90 Days to Freedom just launched. That is a basically everyday workout program for 90 days. We're going to show you what to do every day, including warm-ups, injury prevention, strength, then conditioning, as well as accessory, cool-down. And then we're going to give you notes along the way with private video links so you can watch in case you don't understand the lingo or need to see a little motivation on how to get it done. We filmed everything for 90 days. People have asked me, well, what equipment do I need? All you really need is a sandbag and a box. Uh, a pull-up bar wouldn't hurt. If you have access to an assault bike, a rower or a erg, that's going to help, but it's not a must. You can scale every workout up, and you can scale every workout down and work around any nagging injuries or any limitations. It's very thorough. It's general physical preparedness It's not a strength program, it's not a conditioning program, it's a get in elk shape program, stay in elk shape program, there's no fluff, you should know my style, and it's significantly less expensive than other programs I've seen popping up online, so we wanted to make it super affordable. If you're doing it, tag us on social, use the hashtag 90 days to freedom so I can see what's going on, I hope this helps everybody, now let's get into it with Ron, the legendary Wyoming bow hunter. And we'll catch you guys after the show. Let's get to it. Let's get into this. And I'm excited to talk to you, man, because I've known about you. I know you've been bow hunting a long time, but I I don't know how long that is. So how many years do you have actually bow hunting? Holy cow. Basically from 1978 until now. So yeah, 40 years. Yeah, 40 years. And I know you're an outdoor writer. Where have, has some of your stuff been published? pretty much every bow hunting magazine or outlet with
3: the exceptions of Peterson I Peterson's I think and you know bow hunting world bow and arrow which is now defunct hopefully I didn't contribute to that um, you know several websites you know elk 101 realtree.com
2: you name it you've written it um, and then you're out of Cody I think yes Cody Wyoming yep I'm jealous I think Wyoming is a pretty darn good state to live in when it comes to bow hunting. There's a lot of opportunity and there's so, there's just some really good animals, but we won't tell everybody that. We'll tell them to go to Colorado or Montana. How, have you seen hunting pressure increase over the last 10 years? Yes. How's that going for you specifically when it comes to elk hunting? Uh, we're going to get into all the elk hunting things, but just let's talk about pressure and, and kind of the information age and the social media age. Like the woods are a little more crowded and that's my narrative. What, what have you seen? Same thing. Definitely the woods are a little bit more crowded. Um, it, it's hard.
3: On one hand, it's hard to explain it because they say, you know, hunting numbers overall are way down. Um, I can't agree or disagree with that. All I know is that bow hunting interest seems to be climbing um, pretty astronomical rate as far as the people getting into it nowadays especially women and youth hunters um you know when they're coming in the ranks
2: they tend to be coming in as bow hunters anymore yeah i think it's the barrier to entry is a little bit lower with all the information out there you know to get them uh-huh. to get a bow set up to get it to shoot proficiently and um, i can't tell you how many guests have come on this podcast and been like no i just picked up a bow and i found john dudley's youtube channel and i went through <laughs> all his videos and these guys are really good shots now, and it's sure. just like I didn't have that. I literally taught myself how to shoot, and unfortunately, that's not a good way to go, folks. It isn't. I'm a hundred percent the same way, and I still struggle with bad habits that
3: I developed years ago. Um, but for the most part, it's, maybe it's hard to teach a new dog or teach an old dog new tricks. And uh, I just kind of go with it, and I still basically am teaching myself or relearning some things, but I do it kind of my own, my own way and my own methods
2: and uh, approach it very, very slow. So I'm I'm not making any radical changes at once. Well, I love that about archery. It's why Mm -hmm. I continue to pursue it is there's just not a day where you've mastered it and there never will be. And for me, that's like, that's all it takes to keep my interest is just knowing that this thing requires work and you can get away with a low level of effort, and you will have very few payouts in the end. But uh, the harder you work, usually the better the end result. So let's get into when you started elk hunting. Uh, when did you hear your first bugle, and when did you first go bow hunting for elk? Wow. The, uh, I would say I think the first time I ever
3: heard an elk bugle was when I first moved to Wyoming in 1982. Um, I had a buddy come out that fall. And we took a trip through Yellowstone down to Jackson Hole, um, did some camping out. And, you know, I'd been in Wyoming before that, but it was always during the summertime. Saw some elk, but never any bugling activity at that time. So I would say that fall in September, that trip my buddy and I did, uh, it was, I don't know, it was an eye-opener for me, and it kind of instilled, I always had the passion to to hunt, but that really gave me the drive to, you know, one day I I want to get one of these up with a bow.
2: I know, right? So what's Yellowstone like in eighty two? So I was born eighty one and uh I've never been to Yellowstone in September. I don't think it would be near obviously nowadays what it was when you were there, but just take us through like what was it like? Um it, it isn't the same thing nowadays back then, you
3: know, especially in September, when we went through there in 82, very, very few people um, and quite a few more elk. And, you know, every time we would stop and, and look at some animals or just pull to the side of the road, I mean, you just heard bugles pretty much everywhere. And we would sneak in the woods, we hear an elk bugle. And that's one thing that stuck with me throughout all these years is an elk bugle makes it sound farther away than it really is in the timber. So we'd go sneaking in, walking in the woods, looking for these bugling elk, and basically stumble right into them because we thought they were farther away. Um, and that, that happened several times on that trip, and and that lesson has kind of always stuck with me, because I'm a pretty aggressive elk hunter, and I like to close the gap fast, but I do know that <laughs> in the timber, I need to back off the throttle and pay a little bit closer attention and move a little more slowly.
2: Wow, that's a great nugget of information. If you guys weren't catching that, the type of terrain topography features dictates the the sound. So if you're in a wide open, vast area and you hear a bugle, that bull's probably further than you think. And it's just like the inverse in the timber. And I can't tell you how many times that's that's made me get my pants caught down, you know, by my ankles. Cause you hear this bull scrimp <laughs> rip off and you just start you know, cutting the distance down, they're right there. That right. timber definitely kind of muffles the sound. That's huge. Um, so tell us about your first bow. Like, what did you end up hunting with? You know what? I grew up in a very outdoorsy family and, you know, we were constantly
3: camping and nature walks. And, you know, from the time I was a little kid, I was always busy catching animals, you know, frogs and snakes and turtles and, and gradually, you know, trying to catch bigger things, which wasn't a great idea as far as, coons and possums and, and, uh, <laughs> ch- chasing deer through the forest, you know, like, like an idiot. But through, uh, through my dad's magazines, you know, outdoor life, field and stream, I just kind of got the itch to hunt and nobody in my family, nobody I knew hunted at all. So it was kind of all up to me and I saved up money from mowing lawns. And when I was 14 years old, I bought my first bow, a browning cobra at at a hardware store and six fiberglass arrows. And I guess from age fourteen to eighteen, I pretty much terrorized everything there was to terrorize back back in Connecticut. and then uh, did a year of college um, when I graduated high school and, and moved west in 82 and the bow hunting adventures really started to take off in in 83.
2: Wow. So this Browning compound, man, like can you re- nostalgia wise, can you remember how it felt to shoot? Um <laughs> and and more importantly, like what did you have on that thing? Nothing. Um until
3: fairly recent in my bow hunting career, I uh I shot bare bow. Um you know, I, I I, played around, I shot recurves for a few years. Um, but I, I liked the feel of a compound, but I always shot it instinctively, you know, no sights. Um, no stabilizer, no anything on it, just, uh, just a rest and a knocking point. And as far as that Browning Cobra went, I really wish I still had that bow. Um, to this day, I can't remember what I did with it years ago. I'm sure I sold it once I upgraded to a newer one, but the thing I do remember about that was, that, you know, basically it's an all wooden bow with laminated limbs, uh, but the handle was gigantic. You know, nowadays the handles are you know pretty small and ergonomic, um, so you don't put torque on the bow. But back then, that uh, that Browning Cobra, uh,
2: was like holding the fat end of a baseball bat in your hand, pretty much. <laughs> oh man! So when did you finally switch from a bare bow to you know having some accessories? Uh, I believe it was like in 2008, and that came
3: about because I I struggled for years with. Uh, target panic, and I still do to this day, and it's a it's a constant mental battle, and anybody who goes through it knows, knows what a pain it is, and those that haven't, you know, I, I pray that they never have to have to go through it, but it was, I was always freezing up, you know, I just got in a habit, just, you know, I'd draw back, and I knew that I'd freeze up below the animal, and then at the time of release, you know, I'd jerk my, my left arm up to try to get it to where it was supposed to be, and so that's that's kind of the how target panic affected me, and it's similar, I think, to most people. Where the, you know, a lot of times they will freeze up below the target. So I just I wanted to play around and and see what the latest rage was about. You know, the release aids and sights and the the whole work. So I just totally changed my setup and went from shooting shoot bare bow fingers. To compound sites release and everything else. And, um, it, it definitely has made a a positive difference in my shooting.
2: Was there a book? Was there a release aid? Was there some sort of discipline practice that you incorporated to where you were able to like basically mitigate target panic? No. And that's, that's my own fault. Um, I should have done
3: that at the same time. Um, one of the methods of you know, handling it or dealing with some target panic is totally change your setup. And along with that, there are definitely some steps that a person should go through. But being, I guess, a little, I don't know if arrogant or cocky is the word. It's just like, I don't want anybody else's help. I'll fix this myself um, is is basically how I I felt. And uh, so I just thought, you know, by totally changing things up, I would be well on the path to curing myself and, and it, it worked pretty darn well. Um, just by completely changing the setup, I didn't, you know, I didn't read anything about, um, fixing target panic or what you should do, you know, while you're shooting, uh, you know, release aid and pins and all that. I just, you know, started, started shooting like that and started shooting pretty well. So, wow.
2: That's exciting to know that, Hey, kind of go back to what we said like you can't master this thing archery it's it's always evolving and even somebody with as much success and consistency can still afford to just keep crafting evolving their game i love it and it doesn't get tired to me and same goes for elk hunting ron like you you can't just use the same tactics on elk year after year assuming that it worked last year it's going to work this next year so I kind of want to break down your philosophy first on elk hunting with a bow on public land. What would you say some of your best practices are and how you approach elk hunting public land with a bow? <laughs>
3: Good question.
2: My my basic philosophy for hunting elk is find elk shoot elk.
3: I like um, it <laughs> done you know, as as simple as you can get. Um I just you know, I don't know how you want to approach this from, from like, you know, how do you, how do you start out as far as, you know, the research phase or the hunting phase or, or where you want to go with this. But as far as when I'm, when I'm hunting, um, I love the challenge of spot and stalk elk. Um, not all country dictates that. I mean, there's, there's places it's physically impossible, you know, terrain-wise, habitat-wise, you just can't do that. Um, the next best thing to me is the listen and chase phase. Um, and it's it's basically the same with both. If you spot an elk that you like, you want to go after it, ninety percent of success is dictated by closing the gap as quick as you can. Um, same thing as listen and chase. Um, it's it's closing that gap and that's where if you if you do that, that's probably, 90 percent of where success is going to come from Um, you know if if you're slow in closing the gap or if you just don't get there you know if you're trying to call a bull in from a mile away your odds are you know go drastically down so getting close first
2: and foremost for me um, definitely the the top thing to do well yeah we'll build on this so you getting close hinges upon some sort of physical prowess because elk have four legs to your two they live at elevation and every day's survival and not every day's survival for you your refrigerator's 10 yards away from you probably right now your warm cozy beds right there you know you drive a vehicle to get from point a to point b the elk have an advantage so physically and at your age what are you doing to stay in the necessary conditioning to be able to do that style of hunting which i find very attractive
3: i stay in stay in shape by making multiple trips to the refrigerator.
2: No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know,
3: I, uh, I maintain a, a fairly active lifestyle. Um, I have a, a whole list of, you know, chronic injuries, surgeries, and everything that I've dealt with, rheumatoid arthritis. So as far as a, an exercise regimen that I do, I basically hike. Um, and, you know, a little bit of uh, weight work for the upper body. I, I can't run. I avoid anything that jars my back. Um, that's where most of my problems lie, but I'm just, I'm active year round. I'm i I'm always hiking. I've spent this last week. I think I've been out four times looking for mountain lions. which a lot of people think, Oh, you just drive around till you find a track, not the way we do it. You know, you might cover, cover a lot of ground, by vehicle, but you're getting out, and every day I'm looking for lion tracks. I'm hiking between you know five and twelve miles, just looking for a track in snow. Yeah, in snow, and then you know, I tell you what, when you find a track after eight miles of hiking, and then you go try to run it, I mean you're you're pretty well whooped by the time you start. So it's I stay pretty physical doing that through the winter. Um, a lot of hiking around, snowshoeing. In the springtime, I stay active. Horn hunting—that's um, one of my passions. I just—I just love it. anything outdoors. I just—I love to be there. It's just—it tends to be a mental battle when I hurt so bad. I don't—I just—it's the last thing I want to go do. But I know if I actually get off my butt and get out there and do it, it'll make me feel better. So it's like a, a catch-22. Uh, last, like I said, it's the last thing I want to do on most mornings is even get out of bed. But most of the time I win over and convince myself I need to do it and get out and I feel better by exercising. And some days I just have to chalk it up and like, it, it's just not happening today right. for me. So, um, but just, just being active and playing in the mountains and hiking around like I do keeps me pretty well tuned up for you know doing the same thing during elk season do you have your own dogs no actually just some friends with dogs and a lot of times they'll be with me Um, a lot of times i'll be out at three in the morning all by myself hiking up and down these drainages in the snow looking for a track just so i can you know use my inreach and text them that i found one or else driving out and getting service And uh, seeing if anybody's available that day. If nobody can come, then I usually just follow the track on foot and
2: try to call them in. Oh man, I we're gonna go down this rabbit hole. I'm sorry, Ron, but I have this thing for. (laughs) Have you ever read the book? But it's a guy out of Idaho. It's called The Long Walkers. Yes. Okay. That's on my like. I'm trying to find it. It's on Amazon, but like, of course, it's not in print anymore. So like. I think the cheapest I can find it for like 70 bucks. So I got to go. I think the guy's actually from St. Mary's, Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, if anyone has a copy of that, I'll take it. I'll send it back and I'll hook you up with some swag. But that's that guy, from my understanding, has wh- done what you exactly you know, you know said that you'll do if no one else can come out and run that track. You'll just walk it down. Have you successfully, and this is kind of a life goal of mine I'm advertising, is to walk a cat track down. And do it myself. Have you done that? I I have done it
3: with the fact that I've actually walked it down and seen the cat. Um, never been successful as taking a cat with my bow. Um, I could have could have with a rifle, um, but not with my bow. The, the one time I was in bow range, um, it was in really bad terrain, and I had my bow still on my pack when I came over the ridge and jumped the cat. So um, it is, it is possible to do, um, I have not had very good luck. Um, I think I've been close several times and I've just never had that much luck actually calling them in. And, uh, I think I, my plan is to switch from using a predator call to using more of a, you know, calf in distress elk call. Oh and, yes. And see if that makes, you know, see if that makes a difference. But,
2: or have you ever tried like a, a cat in heat call? I have not. But so I'm not... it's
3: been a predator call just for a couple of reasons because you know I'm hoping they come to a predator call and if they
2: don't I'm hoping I you know get to whack a coyote or something. So, man, I really like what you got going on there. I was just walking snow this weekend. I uh, was looking to cut bull tracks because I had a, an archery elk tag in Idaho, and the ceiling was so low on I just couldn't glass and there's not a lot of places you can glass in North Idaho anyway. So <laughs> right. I was guessing in the right elevation and just pounding miles and. I was praying the cat to cut a cat track and find one with a pretty good stride and then try to walk it down because I was out there pretty early in the day, but it didn't happen. But that's seriously one of my goals is to walk a cat down. I'm assuming they don't tree that easy if they see you, that they go take off again. (laughs) Yeah. And I've tried the whole, you know, run and bark like a dog thing, and that doesn't seem to work either. (laughs) Dang, noted. Well, I'll read that book and get in more into that. But cat hunting's fun. I did it the first time, uh, actually, this year in February, and I wish I could do it every year. It's literally the best. It is the best to watch the dogs work and get that close to them, Uh, and they eat pretty good. Quite honestly, it's some of the best meat I've ever had. Oh, I love it. Um, Beating a two or three lions now and. Yeah, you can we
3: can cook it up and serve it and people have absolutely no idea that they're not eating pork.
2: Exactly. It's it's great. Well, let's get back to your strategy on elk. I'm really into this because you know, guys like Randy Olmer, they wear tennis shoes. They don't bring calls. They intercept elk or they stock, you know, spot and stock elk and I like both those styles uh-huh. where where it's conducive to the terrain. But when you what would you say more likely are you to get in front of these elk and kind of intercept them, so to speak, or are you more likely to put them to bed and make like almost like a mule deer, high country mule deer stock on them? What's usually more common? Man, I'd say it's about 50, 50. And as far as tactics go,
3: I, I throw everything at them that is possible. Um, I am not a one trick kind of guy. I will do whatever it takes. I like to work hard. I really like to be successful on elk. Um, it's not an end all thing for me. Like like if I don't, if I go 29 days in a row and, and don't shoot an elk, um, I'm, I'm just as happy as I was on, on day one. Um, I just firmly believe that, you know, every day that you don't shoot one, you're getting closer to the day that you do. And if you keep that positive mindset, things just seem to eventually work out for you. And, and it, it's a lot more enjoyable along the way instead of, you know, getting yourself all worked up like oh I haven't shot one yet so and so has got elk so and so has and um, people put a lot of pressure on themselves from outside influences when it should just be about the time that they're having with the elk um, so being being that being said I personally I would say 50% of the time I have an elk located either by sight or sound, and I'm moving towards them, Um, and the other times, I am basically covering as much ground as possible, um, what I call trolling for elk, just, you know, throwing out locator bugles, and just trying to get something to respond, and stopping wherever I can, you know, if the terrain opens up, you know, whenever I can glass, I'm glassing, Um, but if I can't, then I'm just you know, cruising up and down ridges or mountains and trying, trying to get one that'll be vocal that I can at least go
2: check out. Do you hunt with a partner, generally speaking, or do you run solo? Mostly solo. I would say the last few years, uh, we we've had
3: a more of an elk camp atmosphere where, you know, we have several of us that camp together and, and, you know, sometimes people will hunt separate. It just depends how many people are there, which people are there, so in the last few years, I've gotten hunt with my nephew quite a bit in September. So that's that's been pretty fun. My son's coming this uh, in 2020. He's coming from Alaska. Really looking forward to that. So when I, my preference is to hunt by myself. I just feel I am a lot more lethal that way. When I'm hunting with somebody, first off, I am... of the time, not going to shoot milk because I'm going to do everything I can so they can shoot milk. So, and I'm happy to do that for a lot of the season. And then there just comes a time where it's like, okay, I've got to go do something for me and I just have to go by myself. Mm. Um, So, and this, this year um, was pretty interesting. 2019, I had a little bit of history with a bull from 2018 a pretty unique bull and I totally screwed up on him last year several encounters nothing super close until you know three quarters of the way through the season and I blew a shot and I hit him in the shoulder and you know he took off the whole arrow came out broadhead and all um, and he was just fine in fact I watched him two hours later fighting another bull and, uh, he whooped this other bull. Um, so I'm a couple more times after that, just was never able to, to get in there and close the deal. And, uh, same thing was happening this year, found the same bull and it took until September 20th, um, to get it done. And I did not locate him that day. It was some people that I was hunting with and I was camped with. In fact, I was laid up with my back that morning, didn't go out. Um, and about, 10 in the morning, people came back to camp. I hopped in a truck with them, went up the mountain, saw some other friends. It was snowing like crazy. And it's like, man, we're not going to see anything. And they told me that they had seen this bull way up on the mountain. And he had 47 cows with him.
2: Oh, gosh.
3: And it was snowing like crazy. And by the time we got there, we could not. I mean, we couldn't see the elk. So I was just going on there assessment that yes this was indeed the bull that I was after and yes none of them wanted to go do it they thought it would be just kind of a fruitless endeavor with all those eyeballs because he had like I said one bull and 47 cows makes it pretty tough but I knew the bull I knew the country that kind of laid out where he was for me and I just took off solo um and before I left i told him, I said, you know, there's maybe a 5% chance that this is going to work out, if that. And and, uh, three hours later, um, I was done. I I had that bull on the ground. And that was thanks to not necessarily hunting with other people, but sharing camp and sharing information
2: that made that all possible. That's awesome that they were willing to share. They knew that you had history. And I don't know, Ron, killing a bull like that, that is older mature he's he's been around and then for him to have a harem of 47 that's a lot of eyeballs brother so the snow had to give you a little bit of advantage so kind of take walk us through a little bit of that scenario did you cut tracks first or did the snowstorm break and they came out to feed like how did you get in tight uh
3: like i said i pretty much knew where they were um, the wind was what I was worried about. It was pretty hard out of the West, but I knew the closer I got up to the base of the cliffs on top of this mountain, a lot of times the wind up there would reverse itself. So it was a fine line how high I could climb and I couldn't, could only see, you know, a couple hundred yards at the most, It was snowing really hard. And anyway, it ended up, I'm, I'm telling you, a lot of it was luck. Um, but a lot of it was the persistence and the willingness to go try it. But I got, I got caught one cow winded me. Um, I couldn't see him. Um, she ended up only being about 200 yards away. Uh, She caught my wind and stood up and came to the edge of this, um, drop off and, and stared at me. And I was in the middle of a clearing. She was up in the clearing and I just, you know, sat there hunched over and the longer she looked, the more elk kept coming up and looking over the ridge only the bull was looking at me and I'm and I had the wrong I put on the wrong top so it wasn't waterproof and I was freezing and but I just was patient and after 15 minutes or so they gradually milled around and drifted off uphill and as soon as they disappeared I, I took off as fast as I could and I got up to the edge of some trees and I worked my way around and spotted them at about 60 yards um, dropped down, got the wind a little bit better, and came up tight into him, and got my chance at the bull, and and got it done.
2: Yep, I, I saw the picture when when you first posted it, and it's uh, it's one for the memory books, man. Just have a bull in the snow, and then to have history, and to stock a herd bull with that many cows is no joke. Wow, that's and incredible. That,
3: that, that uh, and a lot. I have a lot of um, photos from when we. Got back up the mountain. you know a bunch of people from camp came and helped out. I can't ever begin to thank them enough for because it was really miserable
2: mm-hmm. that
3: day. And you know by the time I got out of there, I was about half hypothermic and had to go to camp and change and and gather up some more people and packs and and got back up there. but um more than more than getting a beautiful elk, more than eat getting to eat them a few times a week, Um, the photographs that my buddy Adam took of that bull are, are the thing that's going to stick with me forever. Um, just incredible photos that just show the emotion and the happiness, the success, you know, the misery of the conditions, just everything. The photos
2: just captured it all. And, uh, God, I, I just love them. Well, anytime you can capture raw emotion with an image and then you add harsh weather, I, I remember seeing like snow on the bull's antlers, like dude, that doesn't get any better than that. And to do it solo, it's pretty gratifying. Um, I don't care what anyone says, like hunting with the team's cool, but I'm a solo elk hunter for the most part. And mm-hmm. I, I just get off on making my own decisions. And if I fail, it's on me. And if I have success, it's on me. And I love that tactic. Um, let's break it down kind of the planning process a little bit. I mean, not too deep of a rabbit hole, but you know, January's coming up, February and and wyoming's always the first state to kind of come up and mm-hmm. they made a change i guess i found out yesterday i'm not stoked about they yeah for, you shouldn't <laughs> <clears throat> i've always appreciated that i could know if i'm going to wyoming or not and usually it's i'm not but at least i know and now they're going to hold on to my money and make more interest for several months and then release if you were successful or not which sucks for guys like me that are trying to hunt multiple states and plan everything but yeah. uh and, and I don't know a lot about it, um, but I know that every state agency seems to make changes year. It just changes what you can count on.
3: It does. And it's unfortunate for the non-residents that that want to come here that you still have to apply by the same time, but they're not going to release the drawing results for months after you apply instead of just a few weeks like it used to be. And you know that's a big part of the process for me is, all right, which which states am I going to apply for elk in, which order do they come up, which ones do I want to hunt the most, which ones do I think I have the best chance of drawing, or any chance, and then I guess when all else fails, what are my alternatives, because I will hunt elk every year, no matter what. Um, Same here. <laughs> it's, it's pretty nice, and yet my home state, if, if all else fails, we hunt a general tag, um, and there's a lot of units in the state that have excellent hunting. Um, you know, Colorado OTC is an, is an option as, as well as Idaho. So, or Oregon, you know, those are all what I call my, my fallback plans. Um, not Wyoming so much cause I, I will hunt Wyoming, but you know, I like to hunt at least one, preferably two states a year. Um, I've been, I guess I, I try not to get more involved with that uh, because then it just, I don't know, for me, I just kind of wear out. If, I, if I'm going to hunt elk in, in three states, um, my age, health condition, whatever, it's, it's a little much to tackle. Um, and then I just, I really enjoy spending the camp time in September with the people here in Wyoming. And it gets my wife up there on the weekends and gives her, you know, an extra month of camping. And it's just, so I'm spending a little bit more time closer to home. But I, I still do chase those out-of-state
2: tags. Definitely. So when you plan a hunt, I always tell guys like at camps, I'm like, you kind of got to go through who, what, when, where, why. And I'll kind of work backwards. The why is kind of like, what are you setting out to accomplish? Like, I feel like you should understand where you're going a little bit as far as, have you ever killed an elk? And do you have the opportunity to shoot any elk legally? Then you need to like, know going into it, okay, if a cow steps out I'm gonna shoot a cow or a spike or a rag bull or if you're in maybe an area where you've drawn a tag or it's a little more special I'm gonna be picky and you got to mm-hmm. know who you're going with and what they're all about their style do they pull their own weight in camp um are they selfless to a degree of you know maybe trading off who's the caller who's the shooter all that kind of stuff in the planning phase I think that gets overlooked what else can you say when it comes to the planning phase on just the overall mission at hand. Wow, you, you covered a lot
3: there, and the main thing I think you touched on. Well, they're all really good points, but the main thing is knowing knowing what to expect. Like when it comes crunch time, when you're presented with a shot on an animal, are you or aren't you going to take that shot? So, like, you know, are you willing to shoot a cow? Are you willing to shoot a raghorn bull? Which first timers? I just encourage you to put an elk on the ground, Mm -hmm. um, do, do whatever the heck you can to be successful and then build off of that. Because, you know, I personally know guys here in Wyoming that have hunted elk for over 15 years, have never killed one with a bow because they're trophy hunting. And who knows, you know, after that long, never, never killed an elk who knows that if a 350 bull steps out that they're going to have what it takes to keep it together and get the job done and Uh not, not, not fall apart. So I think, you know, having success and building on that and working your way up is about the best way you can get yourself proficient and confident. So when that situation or, you know, I guess the occasion for a you know trophy bow presents
2: itself, you have that ability and confidence to, to truly make it happen. Yeah. And there's other things to consider as far as your setup goes. Like I, I always run two different bows, just knowing that one could go, something could go wrong and I need a backup bow. I think mm-hmm. a lot of guys sell their, once they get a new bow, they sell the other one and then they're left with one bow. We've talked about that before. That's a huge mistake not having a backup bow, but like messing up with your setup. So I have a bow that's set up for North Idaho where it's a single pin. It does slide, but it doesn't need to. I'm not going to get a shot further than 20 yards, no matter <laughs> really. where I go. Because you're in the jungle. I'm yeah. in a jungle. But when I was in Wyoming this year, I mean, I literally wanted to be able to shoot in my practice range out to a hundred with broadheads, and mm-hmm. then know that I was looking for kind of that 60 yard shot or closer in the field. Um, and that, you, that makes total sense. Do you do something similar depending on where you're going and, and kind of your setups? Um, I do, I, I, I will run, I have, you know, two bows at all
3: times, at least two. Um, they might not be the identical bows, but they're set up identically. Um, it's, you know, same rest, same site, um, stabilizer quivers, you know, the works and, they're probably only a year or two apart and model, you know, make and model. I shoot Hoyts. Um, but so I, I don't really change the setups on them, but I, when, uh, you have to research your units and States where you're going and, and know what kind of habitat that you are getting into, um, and just what to expect, because it can make a, a huge difference as, as far as you know, what you do. Uh, if you're hunting the thick jungles like Idaho, you know, do you want to drop away rest on your bow or do you want a bulletproof whisker biscuit? I mean, it can make a difference sometimes if you're plowing through stuff. It's just, you know, the less things you have to worry about, the better. I'm not recommending anybody switch, but, you know, keep it in your mind what you're getting yourself into. And if there are things to, to mitigate any Disasters to your equipment, and to always, if possible, take two bows with you.
2: Well, while we're talking about equipment, you're a seasoned bow hunter, and I, I'm curious to know: have you used expandables on elk? Do you condone that? Are you a fixed guy, or a little bit of both? What's your thoughts on that? Um, I'm a fixed blade guy. Uh, I've never used uh, expandables on anything.
3: Actually, uh, I have a lot of close friends that have with fantastic results um a couple of instances is all that I've heard sketchy results um there's a guy in elk camp for the last three years you know he's used a rage and uh, all of his shots have been 30 yards or under and he's he's made it happen made good shots and they per they perform flawlessly so he's you know he's had great success for me I, I started out you know fixed blades I feel comfortable with it, and, you know, as far as getting a bow tuned and getting my heads to fly well and match my field point, point of impact, um, it's never been an issue. So I, I've never really
2: had the desire to play around with expandables much. Copy that. So when we're talking about after the planning season, you kind of know where you're going. What kind of research do you start with and kind of take us through that process of leading up to season, even if you can get boots on the ground or, you know, you said you were technology challenged in the beginning of this, but I got to <laughs> know how much technology are you using? Are you a Google Earth guy? Are you a, a Gaia or, you know, Google Earth,
3: yeah, Google Earth on X um, on X is, you know, that has made things so easy. To basically scout from your house, uh, but I would say the, the the first thing, maybe even before I draw a tag, is is networking. Um, and you know, we we talked a little bit about Bowsite. It's a great place to start. Um, I've met some great people on there. People are pretty willing to share information. Maybe not hotspots. Um, and the best way to approach that is not to just blindly get on some internet forum and say, Hey, I want to hunt elk here. Where do I need, you know, in this state, where do I need to apply? Um, where should I hunt? What should I do? Uh, at least have a little bit of knowledge and background before you start asking for help. Um, and you know, just stay quiet for a while and and read some forums, see who's knowledgeable in these different states. And a lot of guys are knowledgeable in many states. And that's where you can start to develop some relationships um, by, you know, private messaging some of these people and just kind of let them know what you're interested in. I get tons of requests every year and I do my best to accommodate everybody that I can. Um, But there are some fantastic people and resources out there that, that are super helpful. Um, and that is, that is number one place for me to start is networking like there or through the Pope and Young club through, you know, through your local archery clubs. You know, if you just recently moved to a state, join this, that state bow hunting organization helps you meet people. It can really give you a head start on, on where to go. And, uh, with that, you know, any state out of state hunts that I do, I try always to join that state organization um, just to show my support and to be involved. When you're trying to, you know, get changes done at a state level with the game and fish people, you know, numbers in your organization count. So that's my recommendation on that. Um, Networking is great. And then uh, I've found that talking to wardens (laughs) wardens
2: <laughs> can,
3: can be more beneficial than talking with biologists. And again, you should have things narrowed down. You should have maps in front of you and you should be ready to ask specific questions and, you know, be able, be willing to throw out some names. So what about this drainage? What about this? The the more homework that you've done ahead of time, the more likely people are going to be to help you.
2: That is such good. And I'm going to put that into practice. So I, I have an Idaho elk tag for 2020, mm-hmm. which is a little aggressive. I've never bought one this early, but I also realized they're going to sell out again this year. Right. And, um, it's an area I've never hunted. And so I started my journey on Google earth, yep. m- marking it all up, figuring out how to access it and then transferring those markups to on X from a desktop mm-hmm. I've talked about on that how to do that before, but that's definitely a game changer. And so my X is starting to blow up and really start to paint a picture. And then I tasked my father with calling the game warden and talking to him. And he finally got. The, we didn't call the biologist, Ron. We called yep. the game warden, <laughs> the guy who writes them up, sees where the elk are get killed, and does the check stations and bust people and sees what you know. And we really got some awesome information, not only on where to start, but where to go once pressure increased. And we are I mean, it's December Mm -hmm. and we're already working on our plan for 2020 because I had two elk tags I didn't punch this year, not because I couldn't shoot elk, but because I was hunting pretty specific bulls and I didn't get it done and they're smart and they won. But I got to be honest with you, I don't like these two tags sitting here Mm -hmm. looking at me. And so it just put a fuel, it just that, added additional fuel to my fire. Right. And the, and
3: the earlier you get started on it, like, I mean, I can't believe all the work you've done already on it. And, uh, like I said, talk, talking to the wardens, I think has been more beneficial to me than, than the biologists. And, and when you do that, you're, you're doing your homework and you're, and you're talking to these guys this early, they're going to remember that. And when some other guys, uh, maybe get a hold of them and they're not quite as prepared as you were, he's not going to give them the same information that he gave you. Uh,
2: so, you know, the not first necessarily first come first served, but it might be the first come best served. Amen to that. So there's that's a huge part of the planning process. And I do have a couple scouting trips planned. Uh, I need, to me, honestly, boots on the ground is way different than Google Earth. I think Google Earth lies to you. As far as what it really, really, really looks like when you're there, we've all been there, right?
3: Yes, we've. I've been there. It definitely lies. Boots on the ground are, I mean that if you can afford the vacation time and can get there, even for a bonsai weekend scouting trip, well worth the time. Um, in in my experience, a a lot of that time. If I can't spend a lot of time at ahead of the you know season, I've found that. Um, just knowing the unit knowing the roads knowing how to get around different places is better information than picking one place and hiking in there and learning it I'd rather know as much as I can about the entire unit how to get around and and get to see it all and then once you see as much as you can some of those places that you have pre-marked up on your OnX are going to make a lot better sense and you're going to be able to key in on some of those quicker.
2: Oh, that's really good info. So when you are getting elk hunting fever about this time of year where you know you got the whole year ahead of you, you know, you have your planning phase and then you kind of, the plans are starting to come together and ca- kind of by June, July, you you know where you're going finally with all the places and you start to put together a plan. In, in all the years that you've done this, what do you think – I mean as far as states go, you've already mentioned a few, but like where would you suggest maybe the listeners who have never killed an elk, have tried elk hunting or are thinking about trying elk hunting, where would you shove them to kind of state-wise where they can kind of start narrowing their focus this time of year?
3: Um, good question.
2: I would suggest a few states.
3: Um, I, I think you should always have a, a short term elk hunting plan and a long term plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just it depends how much you want to get into it. But the first timers to elk hunting, I predict that most of them are going to become addicted and they're going to want to keep doing it. So, um, well, I, I guess I would throw out you know, I recommend you know, just start researching Colorado, it's the easiest place to get a tag right now. They have tons of elk. Um, not necessarily the biggest, um, they have cow tags. I mean, you can break the ice and just go get a cow tag and, and go elk hunt and learn a unit and learn elk. And, um, again, learn how to be successful, making that, making it count. And at the same time, I suggest, you know, I, there's some states I just would not build preference points or bonus points in anymore. I've already been in the game for a long time. I'm kind of stuck there and I'm trying to burn them up and and get out of a few states. But at the same time, you should plan, you know, if you think you're going to be elk hunting for a while, have that short term goal. Like I'm going to go to Colorado or Idaho every year until I can draw a Wyoming tag or until I can draw a Montana tag. And so that way, if you, you know, if you happen to draw, Wyoming or Montana or one of these other states a little bit more of a premier kind of tag um, you can focus on that but if you don't you still at least have a you know a fallback and elk plan in place like you can you could plan on going to these states and if you happen to draw something better well then you go do that instead or hopefully you get to do both so I, I like the bigger is better approach as far as the applications and and hunting plans go is to plan to hunt elk every year and just work on that plan or work on those states that might offer you a little bit better quality animals, quality experience, less people in the field um, and try working yourself up to one of those hunts.
2: Mm, I like that. And I would say to just kind of parallel that is the closer you live to Montana, the more I'd say it's important for you to get get your name in the hat for a general tag. You know, oh, I, don't, I don't know what the odds are, but it's I'd say it's close to 50-50 on getting a general. And if you get that general, man, you got six weeks of archery. And if you live fairly close, you don't have to just go, okay, I got 10 days. You could do a couple of three-day, four-day weekend hunts all the way to mid-October and then maybe take your week where it's really good, in my opinion, towards the, you know, in that early October time when a lot of people are out of vacation and the elk are going to start really going crazy again in that first week of October. The other thing is Wyoming is such a good state, but you know, there's 50 something general units, I think. That's <laughs> yep, there's quite can, a few. It can be pretty overwhelming and some of you non-residents, you can't step foot in some of that country without a resident guide. And every time I mention that on this podcast, I get messages asking more about that. So we should probably just cover it so I don't have to get those messages. But those two states are amazing. But when it comes to opportunity, Colorado is the number one. Idaho is number two-ish. But people don't talk about Oregon enough. It's got 120,000 elk in that state. That's a lot of elk. And you said you've hunted it. So can you talk a little bit about OTC opportunity in Oregon? You know, I've hunted that for... Roosevelt elk. Mm -hmm. Um, You have
3: the option of, I think it's east or west kind of tag Mm -hmm. um, for general. So you can go hunt on the coast or you can, uh, for Roosevelt elk, or you can hunt the western side of the state for the Rocky Mountain. Uh, My brother lived in Astoria, Oregon, right along the coast. I wanted to go see him. He could use elk in the freezer. So um, I just made a quick turbo trip out there during september which i hate to leave wyoming or some primo elk states turn september Oof. but i did that and in and, and and i had no trophy expectations at all this first legal elk i was gonna i was gonna shoot and i did that on on day two had it packed out by the end of day three and i was on my way home the next day and killed my biggest wyoming bull the day after that so um It's Oregon is full of opportunity. There's a ton of country there. It's one of those states I don't recommend building points. Uh, Very few non-resident tags go in these limited areas, uh, the draw areas. Um, But by far, people should keep it in uh, their arsenal of places
2: to go. And I would speak to the eastern portion of the state has got some of the nastiest country. So if you're really fit wanna get your teeth kicked in by some steep mountains, you know, look into eastern Oregon. It's some I mean, you can get away from people and you might need a packer if you get a bull down. So you might want to prepare yourself. (laughs) But that's really cool to go to Oregon, crush it, turn around, kill your biggest bull in Wyoming. And time is flying by. We're almost at an hour. I know you're busy. So maybe tell us the story of your biggest bull in Wyoming. I'd sure like to hear it. Okay. I got back
3: got back from Oregon, slept in the next the next morning I was just whooped and then you know by by seven in the morning I'm like man I'm wasting a day I should be out elk hunting I think it's September 20th and like I can't be can't be wasting these days I quick got up and grabbed bananas and apples and water and just threw everything in the truck took off from my elk unit and got out there and within a short time located a decent bull and and a big herd of cows and he was going up and over this uh, mountain and I knew if I drove around to the other side I could access it a little bit easier so I did that and I started hiking and I I found the bull that I was looking for but I also found another one that was like halfway in between and it looked like a good bull um and for me I am not one of those guys that's hung up on inches uh, I I know what I want you know when I see it and I'm happy with whatever I shoot Some states, it might be a raghorn. Some states, you know, like you said, you might want to hold out for better quality. But in all of them, I just, I kind of know it when I see it. I don't have any preconceived notions. So anyway, I saw this other bull that was by himself between me and the herd. So I I started hiking that direction. And the next um, next place I topped out and was able to see from, um, I could still see the herd in the distance, but I couldn't see that bull was between me and the herd. And as I sat there, um, he kind of meandered into view and he was only 400 yards away and he was walking right to me. (laughs) And believe it or not, it's the only what I call easy elk that I've ever gotten. And it happened to be my biggest one. Uh, I never had to move from that spot. Actually, I backed off the hill and put myself behind the ridge and that bull walked within 40 yards of me. And I was sh- still shooting bare bow at the time, and um, you know I, I whopped him, and he was he was down in short order. I had no idea what I killed. I thought it was like a th- 330 kind of bull, which you know was pretty darn big. You know, definitely one of my biggest. I was super happy and called a buddy to see if he could come help pack. And uh, Jason Stafford, you probably know him, and yeah, and uh, he said, "Man, I'm sorry. I'm I'm hung up. I got to go to a meeting, but you yeah, know I wish I could help." So. And I called my dad and my dad said he'd be on his way out. So you guys know how hard it is taking photographs of an elk when you're by yourself or any animal for that matter. So I fought my way through that process for a while, was just finishing up. And and uh, all of a sudden I hear these, you know, hear something running. And my first instinct was grizzly bear. So I, you know, turned around quick. Well, here's Jason running. And he's got a backpack. He he took off of work real quick and he ran from where he parked the truck a mile or so to get to me. Um, and we took a couple more pictures and then we started you know quartering that elk. And each quarter that would come off, Jason would throw one in his pack and he'd you know run back to his truck. And then he uh, he made two trips for me. And in the meantime, my dad got there, but Jason uh, packed a hind and a front. Uh, back to the truck for me and then had to take off and, and get back to his meeting at work
2: um, oh jason pretty, is pretty, so good buddy,
3: pretty good buddy right there
2: yeah yeah and he i don't know which episode he's on but he comes on and that guy is such a legend as well and uh i i don't know i would love to be friends with him if i lived near you guys he's just uh i'm not <laughs> We've surprised
3: a lot of elk hunting together and, uh, anyway, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's gotten really good at it. I think we both approach it in similar manners and, uh, just have a lot of, have a lot of fun doing it again, back, back to that bull. It was just, you know, it, it wasn't anticlimactic for me. I, w- I was super happy. It was just, I didn't, it was one of those things. I just, I didn't have to plan a stock. I didn't have to beat, you know, 47 sets of eyeballs. It just, everything worked out. He, he walked it's the only easy elk, like I said. I think I've ever gotten. He just he he walked within range of me, and and I shot him. And it wasn't for about a week after that. You know, he's sitting in the garage because I'm out helping other people hunt elk, and everybody's bugging me. What's he score? What's he score? And like, well, I think he's like 330 bull. And when put the tape to him, and he grossed out like 370. It was like I I couldn't believe it. I was just speechless. Oh, that just. Goes to show, you know, you you do what's right, you do what works for you, and what you're happy with, and you know, score be darned, and don't don't let other people judge your hunt. Um, you know, you should be the only one to do that. And if you're, you shouldn't shoot anything unless you're happy with it, for one. And when you do shoot something, be damn proud of it, and don't let anybody take that away from you.
2: We're going to end it right there. That is awesome. So Ron, you are on Facebook, and you are also on. Instagram, and yes. then I can probably pull up some of your former writings. Do you have any specific articles I should pull up that maybe kind of showcase what you're all about? You know, I'm, trying to,
3: I'm working on the one from this last fall that hopefully it'll turn out pretty well, but I've written a, f- a few for Bugle magazine, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation puts out. And, you know, out of, out of most of my articles, I think those are the ones that I'm most proud of um as far as content as far as the creative you know the bugle magazine is a little bit more of a creative writing opportunity than your bow hunting magazines you know people just want short sweet to the point kind of stuff a little more liberty you can take writing for bugle magazine so um, and it's a lot tougher to get published in that so i think those are some of the ones i'm most proud of Trying to think of the name of the first one, Book of September.
2: Book um, of September. First
3: one. I don't know when that one, um, what issue that was in without going back through my notes, but I actually wrote that article while on a sheep hunt with Randy Ulmer. A buddy of mine, um, was guiding Randy on a Wyoming sheep hunt. Um, I went along to, to help out. Um, Randy's a super good dude. And, uh, we just hit it off really well. But those guys had to spike out. Um, they took a couple of head of horses and spiked out for a little bit. And I was back at camp watching the other horses and taking care of camp. And uh, so I had some time on my hand. And that's that's the first article that I wrote for Bugle Magazine. And
2: I wrote it while on a sheep hunt. So it was, it was pretty darn cool. Well, if I can find it, um, I will try to get a link to it and uh, go from there. Now, two things popped popped up when you said that so the first one would be rocky mountain elk foundation so i've been a member on and off mm-hmm. for years and i'm off right now um i've struggled with i thought they were a little slow to the the wolf game when the kind of wolf started ruining my life in idaho here and i didn't were feel slow. like they were really <laughs> slow to like taking a stance and i just was like not very happy with the leadership um and then for a few years there it seemed like They had a show on TV, and I really could—I just did not like the TV show because it was all ranch hunts that I couldn't relate to. I liked that it was promoting elk hunting, but it wasn't really what the people in my circle experienced. And so I was like, "Man, it seems like your CEO just goes on these ranch hunts, and it's not." And I'm—I'm a straight shooter, Ron. So. Um, I don't have anything to say bad or good about Rocky Mountain Foundation. I, I do think I want to support them again, but I thought I'd check in with you and see kind of what your thoughts on, on how they've evolved. They have, have some new leadership now. How are they doing?
3: Uh, I think they're
2: doing pretty well now.
3: And uh, I don't follow them that close. You know, I get the magazine um, four times a year and I enjoy the heck out of it. And I keep, keep tabs with what they're doing in the different states, habitat improvements, access, yeah. you know, land access, things like that. Um, I got involved way back in the early 80s um, just because from that experience, my first experience with elk in 1982, um, I just had a fire lit in me. I thought that elk were the coolest thing on the planet. And uh, so I joined our local chapter within a couple of years. I was the chairman of the chapter. Um, and I know Cody was one of the very first ones. Anyway, so I I, I did my time there and I kind of flash burn, I guess you could call it. Like I donate a lot of time and effort and then I got burnt out pretty quick. Um, just because of, you know, diff- other things going on in life. And then, you know, some people on committees are just there to, to be on a committee and they don't do a lot of work and I don't deal well with that. I like to, I like to make a difference when I'm, as long as I'm a part of it, I want to make a difference. So anyway, I, I, and during that time, I became a life member, or else I would have done the same same thing as you. I thought they were very slow with the whole wolf thing, um, but I was I was already a life member, so I, I couldn't hold my membership back. Um, I didn't didn't really have that option, um, and I I stuck with it. And you know, I guess all I can say is, no matter w- what people, no matter what wildlife organization somebody might get involved with. I don't think they're going to do things a hundred percent like you want them to. I think you got to take away, like, are they doing more good than bad? And yeah. Get, can I, can I support, you know, I might not support certain things about them at all, but can I support the majority of what they do? And, and that's where I'm at with the elk foundation um, especially lately, I think they're doing some really good stuff. So,
2: yeah, it seems like they're picking up some momentum and some steam and that's what, I mean, I literally went to their website recently just to kind of look back into it. Cause I, I've seen some really good things as of late and obviously I am passionate about elk and I want them to be here for my kids as kids. So yeah, I'm going to revisit that. I just want to get your take. I know you're pretty straight shooter. Lastly, uh, you said sheep hunting and I know you've killed a sheep with a bow. Mm-hmm. Um are you knocking on North American 29 at all by chance or where are you at on that if you if you've kept track
3: No I'm not I do keep track I, from an I guess very early starting out um didn't really keep a journal but I kind of kept track of where I hunted what I got and it kind of morphed into a spreadsheet so I do keep track of you know, where I hunted, what I've been successful on every year, where, you know, an animal was taken, what equipment I use, public or private land and all that. So it's just kind of morphed into an, an own personal thing. Um, I don't really like checklists. I will never complete the North America 29. First of all, I like doing things myself. I don't like going on guided hunts, not that there's anything wrong with it. Um, it's just for me, a big part of the challenge and satisfaction comes from doing things on my own. Um, and then there's the financial aspect of it. Uh, I didn't set myself up as well as some people did. So I'm just, you know, blue collar, if I can, that's why I still have 20, you know, 20 year old binoculars. Cause I, I'd, I'd love a new set of binoculars, but you know, I could go on, you know, I could go hunt elk in three States or go on three out of state elk hunts. Um, The money it takes to upgrade binoculars. So I'm just I'm more about the opportunity than I am the I don't know having the always having the latest and and greatest. Yeah, but I have kept count. I think I'm at like 14 different species right now. Um, Hopefully this year in Arizona in January, if I can sneak down there, I'd love to get a coos deer. That would be the last of the deer species that um, that I haven't taken. And you know, but I'm I'm pretty much there at the end. I've taken nine out of the ten big game animals in Wyoming with a bow. I think there's four of us actually sitting at nine animals. Three of us need a mountain goat, and one guy needs a bison.
2: And so um, you need a mountain goat.
3: Yeah, I need a mountain goat, and there's you know you can't buy a governor tag or anything. It's just luck of the draw, and the draw odds are horrific. Um, but you never know. It'd just be one of those things. I'd love for it to happen. I would love to have been the first, because um, after 2015, you know, since 2015, I've only needed the one more. Um, and I had an article in Bowhunter magazine about that. It's called One More for Ten. And also the, I guess the year before that, I put out Redemption Ram, because I, I, sh- the last thing I shot with a rifle was in 1993. And it was a bighorn sheep here in Wyoming and I use a borrowed rifle and I shot a ram at 30 yards and it was really anticlimactic. I was super happy to have a ram. It was before preference points. Um, people had been applying for 40 years, never gotten a tag kind of thing. And I really wanted a sheep and uh, I got a ram, but it was always a letdown that I, it didn't happen. I hunted with a bow for 27 days and it did not happen. Mm. Um, and so 2015 it was I was gonna you know kill a bighorn sheep with a bow or I was gonna be happy with the season and just you know make that good old tag suit we all like so uh and then uh, season opened August 15th and I finally killed the ram
2: on October 12th where did you end up hunting for sheep since you've already had the tag and you could probably tell me now oh I can tell you the
3: exact location
2: <laughs> it was unit
3: 3 Wyoming Okay. uh, Anybody who draws that tag happens to be listening. um, Feel free to hit me up. It's possible to, there's places out of the wilderness that you can do on your own without a guide and I'm
2: more than happy to, more than happy to help. Okay. I might be that guy calling you. I think I have (laughs) uh, not very, not enough points, but like 13 or so for sheep in Wyoming it's one of you the never, few it's right. one of the few states I've actually stayed skin in the game and it's expensive by the way I mean that's a 100, 100 bucks oh, a year. It's,
3: it's super expensive to stay in the game. The only thing you got to do is make sure you apply for a unit um, where you have a shot at one of the random tags. You know, you can't apply for a unit that gives out very few tags because it'll go to the, you know, the people that have the most preference points. So if there's, you know, if there's a chance, like my son drew the very first year he ever applied for bighorn sheep. It mm. took me many years. My kid was 14 years old and he drew a sheep tag as part of that. 25% of the tags go to a random draw. So it can happen. It's like being struck by lightning. It's rare, but it can happen.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. Ron, thanks for taking the time out of your day. And man, I got to meet you face to face. I don't know when that's going to gonna that. happen, but... <laughs> Yeah, we definitely need to do that. I know. So close. So close. But uh, we'll keep Jason Stafford in line for me. And uh, good luck in the draws this year. And I look forward to reading more of your awesome content as you pump it out.
3: All right. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it.
2: All right. Take care, Ron.
1: Hey, elk hunters. Corey Jacobson here from elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic. From planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between, the University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out you owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today.
2: Alright guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Ron is super special to me to me he embodies what a public land elk hunter is regardless of age he's still getting after it he still hits it hard he does all the planning and preparation stays physically active shoots his weapon and the guy's got so much experience so many reps it's just nice to lean on guys like that and gain some elk nuggets along the way 2020 is around the corner if you're listening to this have your goals have your plan And make sure that you have no regrets when it comes to elk hunting in 2020. Do your due diligence. Do your homework. Do your research application. Shoot your weapon daily. Get your reps. Wake up early. Train. Spend time with your family. And show up to 2020 fall in the best shape of your life. Ready to get it done. Fill your freezer full of wild game organic meat. And just remember, we appreciate you guys. Thanks for tuning in. You have a lot of choices and uh, we hope to see some hashtag 90 Days to Freedom or meet some of you at Elkshape Camp. Check out on Elkshape.com, click on Elkshape Camps, and just see if there's one close enough to where I can get in front of you and with my team of subject matter experts, elevate your game. Take care. Have a great week. We'll catch you on the next one.